0: We're reading the end of Revelation, so starting at chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I do not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by the light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign for ever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires through the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offering of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.
1: Please do keep your Bibles open. Marvel at my amazingly clever title on the bottom of the slide. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God who speaks to us in your word, the scriptures. Uh, Pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit uh, this morning, uh, that we be convicted by the truths that we hear and transformed to become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why do we stand to watch the bride as she walks down the aisle? At almost every wedding I've ever been to, someone gets out the front and says something like, will you please be upstanding for the bridal procession? Then a few bridesmaids, one by one, start walking down the aisle in a manner that you would never walk in in any other context. <laughs> one foot slowly in front of the other, repeat ad nauseum, smile like you're on drugs as you do it all the way down. Then <laughs> there's a change in the music. Some sort of thing that indicates we're coming to the climax of the procession. And down she walks. And as she passes each aisle, everyone turns around to ensure that their gaze remains fixed upon this bride as she walks toward her husband. And yeah, you glance at the husband to see whether or not he's going to cry. But usually it's about her. Why do we do this? It's one of those things, you think about it too long. It's like studying English novels. So it's going to ruin it for you because you're doing that. But Well, I ruin things, so I'm okay with that. Uh, Why do we do this? Is it to be polite? She has gone to all the trouble to make herself look pretty, so may we do it out of politeness? Well, yes, but you'd kind of hope it was for a bit more than that. Is it because we genuinely want to see something pretty? I'm not a particularly visual person, but even I can appreciate that, that aesthetic beauty is a thing that makes you want to look, and I'm kind of sure that God designed women of the two sexes to be the ones that are, like, more visually appealing than, uh, than the men. You all know it's true, so... Yeah. <laughs> But you'd hope it wasn't just the aesthetics. That's a bit shallow, right? Maybe it's the fact that it's a super significant day for her. Uh, She walks down towards her husband-to-be. So maybe it's because we want to show that we appreciate that this is a big deal, probably more so for her than uh, for the man. So that's why we stand to make a point of gazing upon her. But these are just the musings in the somewhat unique mind of Ben. Uh, (laughs) Do you want to know the actual reason that we stand to watch the bride? Yes, so do I, because I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but, but, I think it's absolutely brilliant that that is one of our traditions. As of this week, I've decided it's one of the most wonderful and important traditions we have. And the reason I think that is because of what we learn from God in the final two chapters of Revelation. You've got to try and see how that fits together. Well, good, I hope you do, because we're going to get stuck into it now and see if we can work at how it fits together. First up we get the big picture of what God's new creation will be like, the grand end to this book, which is the end of the Bible. Leading up to this, I'm sure you've noticed as you've been here, there's lots of devastating camera angles on God's final and perfect judgment upon all sinful humanity. The, the, the seven last bowls of God's wrath symbolically have been poured out, and we've seen how that goes First of all, for stubbornly unrepentant sinners. Then for the great whore of Babylon that they've created. And of course, last week again, we saw for Satan and his demonic forces what it's going to look like for them. So what now for those who do have their names written in the Lamb's book of life? What would it actually be like for Christians once God brings the world into final judgment? Well, that's how this first vision is going to begin for us. 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. You remember that all throughout the Old Testament, the sea often indicates chaos and death. Just ask the Israelites who crossed and the Egyptians that came after. Or ask Noah or ask Jonah. But now there's a new heaven and a new earth without any such chaos or death. Verse 2, I saw the holy city a new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying look god's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them they will be his people and god himself will be their god now we already know from chapter 19 just from 2 weeks back that the bride is a symbol for the church church being all christians who who have ever lived and here the bride is also a city. Revelation deliberately mixes metaphors to help us understand the big theological pictures it's given us, uh, although you don't want to refer to a bride as a city, uh, usually. But you see, a city is somewhere you live. Just like a bride is someone that's united to a husband or united with God, well, a city is somewhere you live. And God's people are not only the bride but also the place where God will dwell Permanently, that's part of what it means to be in the new heavens and the, the, the new earth. The first thing to say about heaven is that we'll be united with God like a bride to a husband and we'll enjoy living in his presence like you do in a city. And what will that experience be like? Well, this is a golden one. Verse 4. He, God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. A lot of Christians will be very familiar with this part of the Bible. You can understand why. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I think it's Jesus at this point, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is going to happen. The reason Christian funerals are markedly different from all others is because we know that these words are indeed trustworthy and true. The deceased has no more mourning or crying or pain. And that will eventually be the experience of all God's chosen people, including those who are mourning the loss of the deceased. All this comes, of course, as a result of very hard work. Not of us, of course, but the hard work of Jesus. So verse 6, just like Jesus said, when he finished his hard work on the cross... He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost. See, it doesn't cost us. From the spring of the water of life, those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children because, of course, Jesus is God. And if you've got your Old Testament glasses on when you hear these words, you're remembering that in Isaiah specifically chapter 5, God said to his captive people in Babylon, Oi, don't hang around there any longer. Your 70 years are up. Stop slaving away to get your food and water because you're the outcast. Come back to me and I will give you those things without cost. It's a great read, Isaiah 55. It's an image of God bearing the cost in order to set people free and bring them back to be with him. But, of course, with the scriptures and, therefore, also with good preaching, it's usually the case that the positive is reinforced by also spelling out the negative. And so, verse 8, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And that freaks me out, because according to Jesus, we're all murderers, sexually immoral, liars and idolaters. So the great difference is that we're seeing characteristic ways of describing those who have not accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Either you've put your faith in Jesus and his saving work and will therefore enjoy living in the presence of God and with one another, or you're amongst those who will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. I know that it's fashionable to look on the so-called turn-or-burn preaching as being rather unpalatable and ineffective, perhaps rather unsophisticated and therefore unappealing to the academics. But there are occasions where the Bible basically does it, and this is one, turn to Christ or burn in hell. So the big picture of what will happen for Christians after the final judgment is that we'll live together with our God where the many sufferings of this world will be gone. It'll be like retiring to a waterfront property, but only uh, a million, I mean a billion at times better, and with no mortgage because the cost has been borne by Jesus who paid for it all at the cross. So that's the big picture, the new creation. It's a grand picture. But as is characteristic of the book of Revelation, we now get another camera angle of this bride, who is the holy holy city, who is the people of God. And in this angle, it's emphasised that the people who will be there are not just those from Jesus' own people, not just the Jews, but from every nation, tribe and language. First up... It's confirmed for us that the metaphors are being mixed. The bride really is the church and she really is also the city because the city is a place you live in and God will live in his, with his people. So verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of uh, the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And she's very large. So verse 10 he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, because you could be able to see this very large bride, and showed me the holy city. Hey, the bride is the city. Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice that the church is already with God in heaven because she's coming down from her, from him. The scriptures have already told me, that my life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ appears, then I will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3. The scriptures have told me that I've been raised up with Christ and seated at the right hand of God, Ephesians chapter 2. The scriptures have told me that I'm gathered with his people around the the spiritual Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, Hebrews chapter 12. But here I am in this stunning body, but in this fallen world. Okay, this fallen body in this fallen world. (laughs) And see, the picture, therefore, I think, is of those two true realities syncing up. The fact that we are united with Christ and seated with him in heaven, but we're down here. Well, the bride comes down from heaven and the dwelling place of God comes to be on earth. Which is why when you hear the term, the new heavens and the new earth, it can sound like you're talking about two things. But I actually think it's just referring to one thing. It's the sync up of what's going to happen. What will this sinking up be like? Well, to answer that, the book of Revelation gives us another one of those punches in series, the smatterings of Old Testament images that all converge to make one giant theological picture. It's a huge section that uh, we could take hours unpacking uh, the detail of, but the main point is that we're seeing everything you'd expect in God fulfilling his promises to Israel by including people from all the nations. The people who will be synced up on the last day are people from every tribe and nation and language. So what I'm going to do... I've been dreading this all week, but I think it's going to work. What I'm going to do now is go through this huge passage that describes the bride, who is the church, who is the holy city, coming down from heaven... Uh, I'll briefly comment every couple of verses on the Old Testament imagery that's kind of been thrown at us, Uh, uh, but you'll be pleased to know the idea isn't to get into deep exegetical detail, but just to roughly appreciate the big picture that's being drawn for us. As far as sermon preaching goes, uh, this is going to be a pretty extreme ride, so roll the shoulders, I hope you're all ready. Here we go. Verse 11, it, that is the bride who is the church, is the city, shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Isaiah chapter 60, Ezekiel chapter 43, in a good Bible you have those as cross-references, we're told there that in the future temple city of God it will shine with his glory. And back in Revelation 4, when we saw God on the throne in heaven, we were told that he had the appearance of Jasper. Put simply, this is saying that the people of God resemble the God who dwells with them. It's actually right to say that as Christians we become more like Jesus. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. This reminds us, of course, of the book of Numbers, where God organised the 12 tribes of Israel, three tribes on each of the four sides of the tabernacle to indicate that God was at the centre of the lives of all his people. It also reminds us of the great city of Jerusalem with its walls and gates, where again it was designed to demonstrate that God stands at the centre of the lives of his people. For Christians, heaven's going to be like coming home, because God has been at the centre of our lives all the way along, ever since the day we put our faith In Jesus. Verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Just like during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the city and the temple had to be rebuilt, and the laying of the foundations marked an important milestone in its development. Here the point is that the new temple we're looking forward to is built on the foundation not only of the prophets, that is the Old Testament, but also the apostles. That's the New Testament, i.e. the Gospel, It is the apostolic gospel that God uses to build his church. It's not programs. It's not events. It's not social justice. It's not spectacular miracles or great so-called worship. The teaching of the apostles, which is another way of saying the gospel, is the foundation of God's church. Verse 15, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. So the bride's getting her measurements done at this point. Now, with our Old Testament glasses on, we're getting really worried because if we've learned anything from the prophet Zechariah, God's new temple city would be so full that it couldn't have walls and therefore couldn't be measurable. And so we're really worried at this point. But then we remember, just like back in chapter 7 of Revelation, we saw that there was a countable number of people, which really worried us, a countable number of Israelites, because Abraham's descendants you're not supposed to be able to count them but there they were 144,000 12 12 12 but then we saw oh good there's this innumerable multitude as well all the gentiles we're going to get the same kind of pattern here but done in terms of measurement the dimensions of the bride paint a picture of both jewish and eventually gentile inclusion in the kingdom the measurements are all 12 12 12 they're all multiples of 12 Then we see that the 12 apostles are mentioned. It was, oh, that's a bit new. And then we see that the nations, the Gentiles, are coming in. So verse 16, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So the bride is cubic. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was, well, what do you know, another multiple of 12, 144 cubits thick. So just like in Revelation 7. And like all throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen people, Israel, are signified by 12 or multiples of 12. And when God lived, lived among them, he lived in a temple. And the temple could be signified by really, or identified by all the precious stuff that was used to, to, to build and decorate it. And so verse 18 The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, the high priest used to wear a breastplate that had 12 stones to represent all of God's people Israel. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. She's got some big pearls, this bride. <laughs> the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Don't get bogged down to the detail. Here's the basic big picture. 12s, 12s, 12s and precious materials. Well, that all says God's people Israel living in the presence of God, just like in the temple. But one of the functions of the temple was to ensure that God's righteous anger against Sin would not be poured out in wrath upon the people he was living amongst. The temple meant you could go and make a sacrifice and thereby have your sin paid for in order that you could approach the holy God and live. But here, there's no more need. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, made the one true sacrifice for sin and he lives forever to intercede for us. Hence, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. That according to the whole Old Testament should be thought of as a temple city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. They're God and that's why you're in his presence without any more need for sacrifice. He's the one, the Lamb made it possible for us to be in his presence. Nor does the glory of God need to remain hidden lest we die. Instead it's something we enjoy in the open. So verse 23... The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamb. And finally, the big point is made that the Gentiles, people from all nations, are included in this new heaven and new earth in just the same way that God's chosen people, Israel, are. So verse 24, the nations, same word as Gentiles in the original, the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendour to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, which is funny because you'd often think of the nations as impure, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I get that we can go, yeah, that's really good. People from all tribes, nations and languages can... Turn and put their Christ. It's not just Jews. That sounds crazy in our day and age because as far as I know, I'm the only Jew amongst us. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's almost like, yeah, okay, yeah, it, we got people from every tribe, nation, language, but put yourselves in the, in the shoes of the first century reader who are living under the occupation of the Romans and therefore nationalism is very dear to them. I am an Israelite and there's me and there's those nations. God's telling me that those people who I think have no chance of being saved, can actually get saved. And what a glorious God incident we had that our first Bible reading this morning was exactly... Peter goes to a Gentile's house. And he tells him the gospel, and oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit came on them in the same way that they did at Pentecost, just to make the point. Oh my goodness. It, I, I really see how true it is, says Peter, that, that those Gentiles can actually be saved. And then the Jerusalem Council, we'll see this in our reading next week, call him to give an account, what on earth have you done? You have to explain yourself by going and preaching to those Gentiles. And he goes, they receive the Holy Spirit, and you go, oh, oh God really does choose them. Okay, but what, how does that hit the road for us? Well, here's an idea. Everyone has uh, the proverbial Uncle Frank or Harry, or just choose someone, right, who's really, really stubbornly opposed to Jesus. And you think to yourself, there is never any way that that person will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. So I'm just going to give up on them. I'm not actually going to preach the gospel. The first century Jews were told that those Gentiles could be saved. It is for all tribes, nations, language. When you see that in the scriptures, just translate for yourself. That's Uncle Frank, Right? That's whoever it is that I know that he's so vehemently against knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know how I know this to be the case? Because that was me. I used to go to scripture to ridicule and bag out the teacher as much as I could. And now I teach scripture and I'm always worried about what the kids are going to be like. (laughs) People from all tribes, nations, languages, don't give up on that uncle, that auntie, whoever it is. Don't give up on that rock hard person. Because God can save them. He might have chosen them. This was always the plan. When God established the nation of Israel, time and time again, he taught them that the aim was to see people from all nations in the presence of God, enjoying the benefits of eternal life with him. So the vision now moves to what those benefits are. And again, makes the point that people from all nations can be included. Verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. And this is how you know Revelation is symbolic. How does a tree stand on each side of the river? Uh, Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are to keep us alive. No, they're for the healing of the nations, the Gentiles. So you've got this image of Jesus because he's the spring of water welling up to eternal life, you remember that, coupled with the figurative flow of blessing that comes out of Jerusalem to all the people in the Old Testament, like there is a river within God's holy city, coupled again with the image of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which is now enjoyed by the nations as much as it is for the believing Jews. Eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, blessing. And unlike what happened in Eden, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need to light a lamp or light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place not might but must take place and the words of Jesus affirm the words of those prophets because he then says in the first person in verse 7 look I am coming soon so therefore I think blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written on this scroll at our carols each year we have a wonderful firework display and the grand finale almost always, if not always, has what I call fireworks within fireworks. You know how they do that at the end every time? It's kind of like, duh, 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 they sort of put one within the other. Well, we've just had the overwhelming firework display from Revelation and the scene is of an immeasurable, uncountable number of people, not just from the measurable, countable number of Israel in a temple, but from all tribes, nations and languages enjoying eternal life without suffering or mourning, precisely because they're in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the bride on her wedding day. So what on earth are we supposed to make of this ridiculously large vision? Well, thankfully, John tells us. It is given to inspire us to persevere in following Jesus. One of the big themes all throughout Revelation. I can't speak from experience, but I'm pretty sure that when a bride, bride is preparing for her wedding, it really occupies her time and thoughts. It really focuses her priorities the closer it gets. And if it's really soon, if it must take place very soon, well, she's very, very focused on that wedding day. To persevere as a Christian is to be like a bride on the morning of the wedding day. You don't want to get distracted by things that don't pertain to the wedding, First step in persevering for Christ is to recognise the tendency of our sinful hearts to worship created things rather than creator. This is something that we've continually got to fight against. So verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that, I'm a fellow servant with you, with your fellow prophets who do all... Uh, with all who keep the words of, of this scroll, worship God. Don't commit idolatry, John. Now, this could be the same incident that we saw a couple of weeks back in chapter 19, or it could be a different one. Maybe he made the mistake twice. doesn't really matter. Uh, the point is that even someone who's had the most extraordinary visions in Revelation is no less likely to struggle with a pull of idolatry than anybody else. You remember the big warning we saw with the whore of Babylon in uh, 17 and 18? Don't be enticed into finding your security and contentment in the things of this world. It's just another form of satanic idolatry. Seek first God's kingdom, we're told in Matthew. Make the building and strengthening of God's kingdom the top priority and let all the other things fall into place. But idolatry isn't the only thing that gets in the way of us persevering. Thinking you've got heaps of time to prepare also hinders Christian perseverance. The preparing bride getting the hair and makeup done isn't saying, oh, don't worry girls, we've got heaps of time, let's take a nap, we'll binge watch some Netflix before we think about driving to the wedding. (laughs) Will he still be there? John makes the point that if we're to live as if the time is short, well, that's going to help us. Focus and persevere so verse 10 then he told me do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong let the vile person continue to be vile let the one who does right continue to do right and let the holy person continue to be holy just like the prophet daniel was once upon a time instructed to seal up the words of the scroll because it awaited a future destination well so now in contrast john is to live and act knowing that the time is near It's always possible that whatever someone's status is before God in this instant could be cemented for all eternity if Jesus comes back this instant. If you're currently someone who rejects Christ, then if he should return now, it will be too late. There'll be no other chance. If you're currently someone who submits to Christ, then keep on going because the time is near. Don't ever think... You know, I'll focus on my career now, and then when I'm all set, then I'll think about how I can serve Christ and his church. That's not a Christian way of thinking. That will be an epic fail. And John quotes the words of Jesus to make that point very strongly. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And for the second time we get a summarised version of what we saw at the beginning of chapter 1 as the eternal burn uh, uh, message. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They may have the right to the tree of life and go through the gates of the city. But then verse 15, outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who practices falsehood. It's not just John who's going to call people to persevere, to repent... And warns them of the consequences of failing to do so. It's Jesus himself, of course, who's doing the calling and the warning. Which is probably why John has words of Jesus. Did you notice in the reading, just in the first person, just kind of like interspersed in this last chapter? Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root uh, root and the offspring of David, Now, he already said in chapter 5 that he was the root of David, but then probably to reinforce the notion that Jesus is making everything new, he continues, and the bright morning star, the thing that says it's a new dawn. And the last words in the Bible reinforce that it's Jesus himself who is ultimately calling people to persevere through his testimony to John. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, this is true. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. But this word is for Christians. It's the testimony for the churches, it says up there. Jesus, by his testimony given through John, is calling his people from all nations to persevere. Christians themselves, however, also, with the help of Jesus' spirit, who ultimately does the work, are to call and warn people. Evangelism is not an optional extra if you're a Christian. It's the very characteristic of the church. So verse 17, which I skipped over, the spirit and the bride, that's Jesus by his spirit and his people, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears, that is people with ears to hear, who turn and put their faith in Christ, they in turn will also say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. But when we call people to turn and trust in Jesus, we want to make sure that we're being careful to present the gospel truthfully and obviously also to be careful with the word of God. And so verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this scroll. Being careful with the word of God is of paramount importance. There are churches, you can find, where instead of preaching through the scriptures chapter by chapter, it's only ever topical preaching. And the unpleasant realities of sin and judgment, stuff that fill up a lot of the Bible seem either to be brushed off or not mentioned at all. I know, because I went to one for a year as soon as I became a Christian. Now, how on earth am I going to summarise the teaching of this massive two fireworks scriptures of Revelation? Well, here's the best I can get. This took a long time, so I appreciate this, people. God's people, which is the bride's last city, from all nations, that includes your stubborn Uncle Frank, will enjoy the greatest wedding ever joyful eternity, no crying, mourning, or pain, where to avoid distractions such as idolatry and worldliness as we prepare for that great day. So briefly, by way of implication, don't be a coward. It may be the case that you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Isn't it incredible that on the list in the eternal burn part of 21 that the very first word of those who will be consigned to the lake of burning sulfur are the cowardly? before the unbelieving. See, sometimes there are people who actually know that the gospel's right. They actually know Jesus is Lord, but they know it's going to have such a change and a claim on their lives if they turn and put their faith in him. Uh, But hell's going to be filled with people who thought I really should and never did. Don't wimp out. Don't be a chicken. Don't be a coward. Say, I'm going to throw my lot in with Jesus. I will turn to him and I know that it's going to be a difficult, costly life as I take up my cross, but I'm not a coward, so I'm going to do it. Second one, you'll often hear it said that God never gives us anything beyond what we can bear. Sort of true, yeah. But often people who suffer always think that what they're suffering is beyond what they can bear. Sometimes the Christian life is progressing in the midst of trauma Uh, And it involves simply putting one foot in front of the other, like the the bridesmaid going slowly down the aisle. Uh, But remembering that bride is going to come down, she is going to do her walk, ought to be the thing that inspires and motivates you to still just take that next step to put that one foot in front of the other. The bride who has a wardrobe malfunction or a hair and makeup disaster or unexpected car trouble or some unforeseen disaster on the morning of the wedding can't help but to prioritise walking down that aisle no matter what as the thing that determines all the other priorities. And that's why I think it's absolutely fantastic that we stand to watch it happen. No one knows what her morning was like on the spectrum between perfect and most stressful disaster day of her life, but she's made it there, so damn if I'm not going to stand and watch. Let that be the thing that makes you, even if it's going to be one very slow step in front of the other, persevere to that great wedding day. Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that we can look forward to the time that is near where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order has passed away and that in your incredible mercy, you've paid for it all, not by our good works, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed to pay for our rebellion against you. Father, help us to persevere. Help us to remain focused on your kingdom as a bride to her wedding. And Father, we pray for those who uh, have not yet put their faith in Christ that by the power of your Spirit, you'll convict them of of the truth and their need to man up and stop being cowardly and to do it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.